everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Michael Satlow, who teaches at Brown University, here to talk about his new book, How the Bible Became Holy, out from 2014 from Yale University Press. Michael, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's great to have you. So the book is called How the Bible Became Holy. Before we get into the became holy part, maybe we should talk about the first part. What is the Bible? How did it get into its present form? Um, And you say at the beginning of the book that it has sort of a peculiar form. So what can you say about that? Well, the Bible as it exists now is really very much an anthology of ancient Israelite writings. So if you take, let's say, the, the, the... from the Torah on to the beginning of the, the prophets, tell something of a narrative. Um, but it's a disjointed narrative, and it's a narrative that anybody who has read the uh, the text itself knows it, it goes back and forth, it sometimes contradicts itself, it seems out of order at times. And from there, the text, you know, the, the Bible seems to move to a series of books that are more or less, but not exactly chronological through the prophets. And then after that, uh, you know, you have this collection in the writing section. So it's a, a pretty strange anthology. So the Bible was composed or compiled over the course of centuries, is that right? Yeah, many centuries and in many different stages. So I think that, you know, you can look at different parts of the Bible as being, you know, coming into being in different times and places. Uh, and then those pieces were stitched together. They were stitched together first into books, and the books eventually get accepted as authoritative by certain communities in different times and places. And ultimately, it doesn't reach its kind of full form um, until you know well into the rabbinic period, or or really past that even, if you want to think about the the final textual form of the Bible. So the Bible gained its authority over the course of many centuries. But before, before we get into the chronology, what does it mean for a text to have authority? Right. That's a, a central concern of my book, because the, the issue of authority or the word authority, I think, is a um, it's a little misleading. So I think norm, normally when most people think of biblical authority, they think of what I would like to call a normative authority or legal authority as the text has some kind of claim on how it is that one should behave. But that's not the only flavor of authority that you find in the Bible that you can just use for the word itself. The Bible can have a kind of um, authority as a text for reading and training, uh, much like we talk of the literary canon. Uh, in English literature, we used to talk of the literary canon. In my day, we talked of the literary canon. Mm-hmm. Um, or it can have also a kind of oracular authority. So in the ancient Near East, right, people collected oracles, uh, often at a kind of imperial level, and they put them in libraries and would occasionally consult them uh, if they had questions. Should I go to war today? Uh, and those oracles were seen as coming from a divine being, but that, had, again, had a very particular kind of authority. So authority is, is a nuanced term. And uh, one of the things that I would like to, to do uh, in the book and generally is to think about it in a bit more of a, a complex way. And so the remarkable legacy of the Bible is that we have now an idea that texts have power. What do you mean by that? 
Well, and this is a, um, a real shift into the, in the modern period. So if you want to think about the pre-modern period and the way most people practiced religion uh, or various other kinds of, of activities, human activities, most people gave authority to what their parents, grandparents, village, community had done before them. Is nobody really looked to a text for authority. Uh, so if I want to know what I can and cannot eat, let's say the laws of Kashrut, generally I wouldn't take out a text and look at it, right? But I would see what it is that was acceptable in my village and, and what it, what my family did. Uh, it was only really in the modern period when you have a diffusion of both text and literacy that text ended up being really that we, we consult text for all kinds of things. So we live in a, a very textual community. And that really was something that the book or that the research for the book really drove home to me in a way that I hadn't really thought about very much before. Uh, the way that you will look at a cookbook uh, to cook and, and really actually, or at least for me, feel a little guilty when I deviate from the recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, certainly texts, memos, and we, it's hard to imagine a, a life without texts. But in a pre-modern period, you don't really have texts. You don't, certainly don't have widely circulating texts of any kind of sophistication. So uh, what I was, I was trying to get at here is the notion that when we think about Judaism in antiquity, we're probably not really talking about a textual religion. Uh, we're talking about a religion that had certain kinds of historical customs and mores that ultimately those mores would get wedded with a text. Uh, and the text would kind of come to be at least iconic or symbolic of what was really important. What do we know about what reading was like in the ancient period? A lot of this, you know, we, we know some. Um, we know something about certainly um, common rates of literacy um, so and the actual production and circulation of texts. So the, the production of, of again, let, let me say sophisticated texts. I'll get back to non-sophisticated texts in a minute. But the uh, production, reading, circulation of those texts was really for an elite. Uh, and that's really what we would call the scribal elite. So you might have oral stories being told. For example, you one can imagine a lot of the stories of the Torah or in the certainly the first prophets as being told from a bard or some uh, around a campfire, if you will, passed down kind of sacred stories. But the actual writing of a text and the reading of that story was a specialized activity. Uh, so for sophisticated texts, you know, which really almost everything in the Bible is. Uh, on that level, you have sophisticated literary texts, very limited. That's not to say that people were completely illiterate, right? So I think that there are certain um, registers of education in antiquity where people could write their name on a jug to identify the jug um, or scratch a graffiti or the like. That didn't take very much education. So it ranged widely, but in terms of, of literacy, the circulation of text, the use of text, or the reading of texts, um, all of that is, is much more limited than what we have today. 
And for the non-sophisticated text? Well, so these would be like the the jugs uh, with the names I on see. it, or a piece of pottery that's you know somebody scratches something on, uh, or a signature on a document. So if I wanted to do a legal document, and the antiquity, you certainly did have legal documents. Um, you would probably go to a scribe. The scribe would draft the document, and you may or may not know how to sign it. Uh, in many of our documents, people don't know how to sign, and they have to use other people to sign for them. Um, so even at that level of being able to to sign your name, that wasn't one couldn't presume that of everybody. So one of your main claims is that the Bible wasn't holy or authoritative at the moment of its composition. How did you come to develop such an argument? Well, that gets really to the development of the, the whole book. And the book started, it ended in a very different place than I began, that I thought it would end. So, you know, we have a notion in the academy, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's true to some extent outside the academy, I think, as well, that the Bible comes into being and somehow it gains kind of immediate authority, or it's certainly authority at the time when it's all kind of put together in at least a, a kind of some form. That's normally identified as the time of Ezra, right? So you have the Israelites go off to Babylonia, they come back, they have a text, the text now is authoritative, and this to some extent is what differentiates ancient Israelite religion from what would become Judaism, this idea that the Torah is central. So that's a kind of general narrative that starts with Ezra, picks up steam along the way, the Jews all through the Second Temple period, I mean about the years 520 BCE to 70 CE, um, more or less all of them thought that the Torah was was important and was a, a, a kind of bedrock of their religious life. But that narrative has actually never been fully articulated as a narrative, uh, to my mind. So I set out to really tell that narrative and to tell it with um, an eye toward the people who are creating, reading, and giving these texts authority. So I try never to use the word, for example, Judaism in the book, because I, I think Judaism is an abstraction that gets away from the real lives of, of people who call themselves Jews. So rather than making those generalizations, I wanted to, to think about, you know, kind of history from the, that from the ground up, as it were, in the, the nature of, of the text and reading. But as I began to develop that argument, I actually came to ex almost exactly the opposite conclusion. So as I began to reevaluate the evidence, uh, I began to think that actually the narrative doesn't have that narrative ritually doesn't have very much to support it. And that you can equally well, at least draw exactly the opposite conclusion, that the text circulated, but they circulated among a learned elite, and that most Jews actually didn't follow the Torah. They may not very well not have heard of the Torah or the other parts of the Bible, but they, of course, practiced things that were in concert with the, that Torah, but those things came from customs of their community. Uh, they're kind of just historically what, as I said before, what they've, what they've always done. Um, so it kind of it, it, it organically developed and um, it became a, a somewhat painful process. At the end, then I had to kind of come back and rewrite everything uh, to kind of understand what it is that, that I was arguing there. So that's the that's the argument um, that I, I end up 
uh, you know, conclusions I end up coming to from this research. So let's dig into the, the three big parts of the book. The first part covers the Israelite, Judahite, and Persian periods. Give us just a broad overview of what's going on in those periods. And reader, uh, listeners might be interested to, to hear, why were certain texts written and read at this point? Right. So there, that's the, those are the formative years. Uh, and that's when you have different collections of different kinds of literature that move from an oral form to a written form. So if we start in kind of the, uh, the Judai period, I mean, you know, you have the development of written law codes, uh, the writing down of prophetic oracles, uh, you know, these kinds of things, the, the stories, the stories that would be told that talk about Israel's sacred history, uh, and th- these things get written down. And they probably at this point get written down mainly again, for scribal purposes. So scribes are really writing them for other scribes, or they're writing them as intellectual exercises. To give an example of that, because that's actually a little bit, that was a, an interesting issue for me. If you look at the laws in Deuteronomy, for example, right, or, or anywhere in the Torah, they present themselves as the law of the land. But if they, if you want to read them as the law of the land, you have to understand them within a historical context of a legal authority that would use those laws as the law. Now, it turns out that's not really how law was practiced in antiquity. So through all of antiquity, and this includes Hammurabi's code, generally the way law was determined, uh, you know, if you had a dispute with your neighbor, you would go to the village elder. The disputants would lay out their claims, and the elder or elders, often in a public setting, would issue some kind of verdict that's based somewhat on precedent, but also in a way that that deals with the entire social situation to avoid conflict within the village. What they do not do, and this is the critical point, is they do not look at a legal code or a set of laws and try to weigh the evidence against those laws. So you end up with a kind of fluid law with these kinds of legal codes that are written down, whether it's Hammurabi or in the Bible, they're ideological. They're not really meant to be practiced by the letter, but they're meant for some from the authors of of such a document to kind of put themselves out as being just or, and they are collections of precedents. And they are often there then kind of used by and copied by scribes. Uh, again, as kind of part of their legal training. So I stopped seeing, in that case, the legal parts of the Torah as being normative, as being actual law, and more as being scribal exercises. So that's really kind of what we end up with in, in Judah, especially as we get closer to um, you know the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. We actually have kind of a flowering of a literary culture of the elite. And these kinds of texts get, they get written down, they get collected, they maybe get stitched together a little bit. What they don't do is they don't circulate, it appears, outside of these kind of rarefied circles. We go to Babylonia, right, where maybe some of these texts get stitched together more. Maybe the Torah emerges from Babylonia. I think it actually emerges a little later than that. Um, and then, you know, when, when people come back, 
uh, into Jerusalem, that's really, that's an interesting moment. We have there in the book of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, right, in these two books, a kind of attempt to make the Torah normative, to make it the law of the land. And what I argue is that if you read those accounts closely, you see that actually it fails. Much as perhaps in an earlier time, Josiah maybe tried the same thing back in, in Jerusalem before the destruction. But Ezra and Nehemiah, I think, actually, they tried and they failed to make Torah the law of the land. Uh, and from there, again, Torah kind of submerged again uh, and became, you know, uh, and, and in fact, all these documents, they go back to the archives, as it were, and become the preserved scribes. And then in part two, uh, the Greek period, the Greeks are, you know, really interested in writing things down. How, how do the uh, Israelites or the Judites learn from that? Well, the Jews at that point, I think it's more of a matter of authority. You have these written texts now. And here, I, I think this is kind of the core of the book, is this, uh, this, this Greek period, where you have two different kinds of developments going on. So the first development is really outside of the land of Israel. When the Torah, and the Torah is the first kind of section of what today's Bible to get translated into Greek, gets translated into Greek in Alexandria. The big question in scholarship, why it gets translated, and there are basically two different opinions. One is the idea that the Jews in Egypt thought that the Torah was authoritative and they wanted their own copy because they couldn't read Hebrew very well, so they authorized that translation. The second um, explanation is the one told by the letter of Aristeus, and you see it in some other ancient sources, which is a legend that is actually commissioned by the authorities in Egypt, that they wanted the Torah translated to Greek, and they did that maybe for the Alexandrian library. They got translators down from, from Jerusalem to do this. I think on the whole, scholarship has like has shifted to seeing the former, that is that the Jews commissioned it, uh, as a bit more persuasive. I actually think that it's the other explanation, the first explanation, the letter of Aristeus, that's more likely. Uh, and you do this because if you think about whether the Torah was actually, whether the Jews wanted the Torah in Egypt, right, I think that you have to make a case, some kind of historical argument, for showing how it is that these Jews thought that the Torah was actually uh, important and why it is that they would want it translated. So if we go with that other narrative, as I do, and say that, well, the, it's the G Greeks in Alexandria who actually translated or commissioned, rather, the Torah to be translated into Greek. The question is, does anybody read it or who reads it? And I don't think anybody does read it for quite some time because you but then you begin to see a kind of explosive engagement with the Torah in the middle of the second century uh, BCE by Alexandrian Jews. And the reason for that, I think, kind of gets at, at your question, Jason, which is the Greeks, Greek culture was very much centered around texts, especially at an elite level. And the central text of that was Homer. So if you were an intellectual in Alexandria and you wanted to gain social status, one way to get that was through an education that started with Homer. 
But Jews, to the extent that you had kind of elite intellectual Jews in Alexandria, couldn't gain status in the same way because Homer was not a suitable document for them. I think it's at that point they discover, really, that they have this text, the Septuagint, the Greek text, and they begin to engage it and play with it and work with it, much as the Greeks worked with Homer. So in that way, you begin to see the growth of the authority of the Greek version of the Torah in Alexandria, right? And that's and that kind of mushrooms into this kind of literary authority. It's very interesting that, to our knowledge, um, the Jews of Alexandria, the Jews of Egypt, in generally, did not look to the Torah as a book of law. Maybe one or two very small exceptions. Uh, otherwise, we see them just using kind of the common Hellenistic law. But they did look, clearly look to the Torah as a source of uh, pride, right, as a place in which they can engage intellectually. So that's one strain that goes on in the, in the, um, in the Hellenistic period. The second strain is within the land of Israel itself. And there you see a kind of growing movement Again, among with there's a split in the elite crap in the elites and a growing movement to um, to see the Torah as normatively authoritative. Should I can should I develop that sure. a little bit for you? Let, let's let's jump ahead to to part three, okay. which is the Roman period, uh, and how does that lead us into what we think of today in terms of Jews' appreciation and reverence for texts. Well, I think that you end up sort of starting really in the, um, well, in the first century of the Common Era. What's happened, let me just step back briefly into the Hellenistic period, because what has happened in the Hellenistic period, I think, within the land of Israel, is that the Sadducees, right, the Sadducees, in kind of in a conflict, a power struggle with the Pharisees, begin to promote the authority of text. The Pharisees, and this is a, a somewhat radical and con- will be a controversial claim in the book. The Pharisees, I think, were keepers of the old guard. They were keepers of the oral tradition. They were keepers of a non-textual religion, whereas the Sadducees who push a textual religion. The Sadducees, in a sense, end up winning. They develop a kind of a sense that the Torah is a normative book, and they also promote it out into the beginnings of synagogue. We see the first synagogues in the land of Israel come in the first century of the common era, more or less around that period of time. And we assume that one of the things that they do in those synagogues is, in fact, reading and explaining Torah. So once you begin to get that as a mode of diffusion and people begin coming and listening, then you be that kind of spreads out in a way that Torah now becomes more authoritative. And that authority grows. To the extent, of course, when you get to the rabbis, Torah is central. Right? That is the entire, that is the, you know, the, the touchstone of their enterprise. Uh, so they develop that, you know, massively, as it were. And once the rabbis themselves become more authoritative for the larger Jewish community, well, that's the, the you know, the, the breaking out, the final breaking out of Torah as the, you know, and the whole Tanakh, the whole Jewish Bible as, um, an important text in Israel. You know, Michael, one thing that struck me was that so much of ancient Jews' 
fortunes were dependent upon the empire in which they were situated. And it seemed like the, the you know, the, the center of the empire didn't really care a lot of the times about what was going on in Jerusalem. So how much of the story is just a story of neglect of local conditions? Well, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, empires in general don't care about a lot. I mean, what they care about are taxes and peace. So if their dependencies are, you know, able to um, remit their taxes and they don't rebel, then empires tend to be happy and they don't really care what they do. So I think that there are these um, movements in Jerusalem, especially, you know, which we saw with Ezra, with maybe to make Torah law, but they fail under their own weight. So in the end, these are all internal developments. But you're right that the, you know, the, uh, the empire, the, whether they are, you know, Greeks or Romans, uh, whatever, largely do not care about text and what, what Jews are actually doing. Right. I thought that was interesting. Okay. It's time now for the lightning round, as I'm calling it. Um, so Michael, what do you think the, what do you hope the impact of the book is? Well, I think that, as I mentioned before, the, that whole narrative, of the power of Torah and the authority of Torah, uh, it hasn't really been fully developed. It's been assumed. What I want to do in this book is to really question that assumption. Now, what can be, be maybe more or less compelling, the actual argument of it. But I think that what I want to do is to have people to recognize that they can't simply assume the hegemony of Torah, that such a case has to be actually be argued for and made. Uh, because, you know, now there's a kind of counter-narrative out there. How has researching and writing the book changed the way you see the world? I think a lot of it is, again, this tension of, of text and tradition. Um, so it has kind of attenuated me more to how textual we are. Um, and it's opened up for me kind of other ways of thinking about tradition in a very non-textual way. I think, you know, looking back at antiquity and seeing a kind of uh, a way in which religion was practiced that's very different from the way we do it today, um, you know, to me was really enlightening. You, you finished your book talking about the, the U.S. Constitution. Um, are Americans particularly interested in textual authority? Um, I think so, that in matters of... of um, of law and perhaps even religion, I think they are. I think I'm certainly far from being a modern legal scholar. I know that if you take, for example, the Constitution and the reverence with which that document is both held and cited, uh, and you compare it, for example, to British, the British legal system, which is built much more on a system of common law and precedent, um, I think that really you, you, there may be some kind of significant difference here that could well trace back to Puritan emphases on the Bible, right, as a written document. Um, and that there may be something very much in the kind of American cultural history that lends us a little bit more to look at um, the written text, the rule of law, as being particularly important. So, Michael, if I'm at a cocktail party, uh, what tidbit from the book can I use to impress someone? I like the one about um, biblical law, right? That biblical law was actually not meant to be practiced. 
but was meant as a kind of ideological composition. Mm-hmm. Mine is the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, actually, very few complete scrolls. Most of the the scrolls were tens of thousands of fragments of parchment. Yeah, and if if you saw the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit that recently came through uh, the states, it was in a number of. I think it was in New York at the Discovery Center. Um, I brought a class there to look at them, and they too were stunned. You know, we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but actually, what you have are these tiny little fragments that they were displaying that you can barely read. Well, Michael, we've taken a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Uh, Well, this ends up being a kind of um, first part of a longer project. So I, in general, am interested in Jewish social history, uh, and especially religious history. What is it that Jews actually did in antiquity? Uh, So this, you know, was ended up being kind of an outgrowth of that interest for the early period. What I'm doing now is, in a sense, the, the second part of that, which is that after 70 and the destruction of the temple and with the rise of the rabbis and the new knowledge that the rabbis probably didn't represent the majority of Jews in their community, what is it that Jews were actually doing religiously to worship their, the God of Israel? Normally, we think of non-rabbinic Jews as being somehow unorthodox or, or less engaged, but I I would actually like to argue the opposite. That is, the rabbis, in a sense, who broke with these ancestral traditions and created something new, and they may have been the religious revolutionaries here. But that's in general, that's an argument that I need to think about more and develop. But in general, the the project there is to really think about um, about what it is that Jews did. I guess that's the parting thought that I think is to me, was also kind of most interesting about working on this project, was that Judaism, in antiquity or the present, right, it's not an abstraction uh, as much as it is what it is that that actual human beings do and, and why it is that they do them. And to think about that as having its own kind of authority um, that at least rivals textual authority. Michael, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is How the Bible Became Holy. The author is Michael Satlow. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.